to the main course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to talk about the legal outlook for 2022 for restaurants and what restaurants need to know, what issues should be on their mind and some things that, you know, that they were dealing with kind of before the pandemic and they're still dealing with and and mostly what they need to be aware of going into 2022 and some things that are on the horizon that they should be aware about. And with me today is Pooja Nayer, who's a partner uh, focusing on the food and beverage sector at Irving Cohen and Jessup in Los Angeles. So she's very familiar with everything going on in California. And as, as we know, a lot of things start in California and then kind of let their way out across the nation. So welcome. You know, first, I want to go over, you know, where we stand now with covid you know, people hear a lot about vaccine mandates and their con- and mask mandates. You know, there's a, a lot of concern for their staff and for their customers, and everybody just wants to be safe. But you know, a lot of the restaurants don't want to be a gatekeeper, and they you know they don't want to alienate their potential audience. So, what do they have to do? You know, what are the best practices that they should be aware of when dealing with their local vaccine mandates and mask mandates? Well, I think as everyone's known since uh, 2020, unfortunately, things are changing almost every day. So it's very difficult for restaurants to have any kind of predictability. So I'd say the number one thing is to be aware that the federal guidance, state guidance and local guidance is changing all the time, sometimes almost on a daily basis. And I think this stage in 2022 reminds me a lot of the beginning of 2020 when we were having kind of new guidelines kind of coming out all the time. And so in terms of the vaccine mandates, it's we're really watching what's happening with the federal government. So the Biden administration issued emergency temporary standards that would apply to any employer with 100 employees or more, which would cover a lot of restaurants. Mm. And those ETS was to ensure that all employers were either vaccinated or that they submitted, if they were not vaccinated, they would have to submit to weekly uh, COVID testing. And the Supreme Court just heard oral argument on that ETS. Some of the oral argument, the comments made an oral argument indicate to me that they may be looking unfavorably on the vaccine mandates or maybe, you know, but it's, it's difficult to tell until a written opinion comes out. But that Supreme Court decision is going to have a lot of weight because it will affect not only the federal government's ability to issue those mandates, but also what other states have been doing. So that's something that we are all kind of anxiously looking for to see. And it really, you know, some states have taken such drastically different approaches to the idea of a vaccine mandate. So, I, you know, for, for restaurants operating across states, it's it's got to be very, very difficult. But for restaurants that are kind of dealing with their state it's really the state mandates, if there are any, that that are what restaurants need to be aware of, because the federal government's mandate is basically frozen right now. It's not in effect. Uh, so if a restaurant has a vaccine mandate in place in reliance on what the federal government is doing, they need to be aware that there's a chance they could get sued by their own employees about that. And it's unclear what kind of cover they'll have. So for the most part, it's it's different for, uh, for California restaurants versus the rest of the country. But you've got to be aware that if you are requiring employees to, to have the vaccine and you're firing employees that don't, you could be looking at lawsuits down the line. Right. Do we have any idea of an ETA of the Supreme Court's decision? I think it'll probably come out in the next month, given given the time sensitivity of right. it. And they heard oral argument. It was it was kind of heard on a special notice and special briefing schedule. So I think I would expect something to come out in the next four weeks. Right. 
So mask mandates. Now, you know, people are, you know, selling out of more more of the upgraded masks, you know, people are are more concerned than just wearing the cloth masks and now. So, you know, what what should employers do to better help their their staff? You know, what should they ask of their customers now in regard to mask mandates? So I think this is an issue where it's a lot of the restaurants taking on that kind of gatekeeping responsibility, which I know a lot of my clients have found extremely frustrating and have felt that they really just don't have resources. So what I anticipate, what's happened in LA County, which I think will will have a ripple effect, is that LA County just imposed a requirement for employers to provide essentially upgraded masks to their employees. And that could be either N95, KN95, or surgical masks rather than cloth masks. And employers have to bear the expense of that. And it's for any employees that have close contact uh, with customers and are required to work in person. And so I would anticipate that particularly if the federal government and state governments are ordering more masks, that when masks, when the upgraded masks become more available, that it's going to be become a restaurant's uh, responsibility to provide those to their employees. Now, on the question of customers, I think that even if some local jurisdictions impose a requirement that anyone who's who's required to wear a mask under an indoor mask mandate must wear a protective mask or you know one of the upgraded masks, I have a hard time seeing that be enforceable on restaurants, particularly if you're talking about you know quick service. It's it's almost untenable to monitor what a customer is doing all the time, especially if they're taking off their mask to dine. So I think even in jurisdictions that have proof of vaccine mandates, even if they they require everyone seated to be wearing those upgraded masks. I, I really have a hard time seeing them enforcing that or issuing public health fines uh, on restaurants for that. They're already having such a hard time with the proof of vaccine issues. So someone at my restaurant, one of my staff members, tests positive for COVID and then maybe another. And, you know, there's what the CDC says, what OSHA says, you know, right now, what, sh- what should I do? What should I do to prevent a total outbreak among my staff? What should I do to advise any potential guests who were there who might have been exposed? You know, what are the best practices that I need to do to be safe and secure and also, you know, reduce my liability if there is any? I mean, I think this is the question I've been getting on the phone most of the time. And the answer is, in terms of what the regulations say, it's a total mess, right? The CDC issued those guidelines that we all heard about that said five days of isolation. And then after those five days, you can wear a mask consistently, but be able to be out. OSHA is still going by 10 days. And neither of those requirements require a negative test to return to the workplace. But employers can require that an employee test negative. Now, what we're seeing in California, and I believe all across the country, is it's really difficult right now to get rapid tests and to get PCR tests that come back on time. And under both federal law and in California, and I believe in most states, if an employer has a testing requirement, they need to supply the test and pay the employee for the time to take the test. And so it's difficult and people are approaching it in multiple different ways. And it really depends on staffing needs and how close contact is, right? And where the employer Mm -hmm. is located. So I've got some clients that are requiring a negative test. And for them, they're feeling the huge effects of that 
that shortage in the supply chain. Because essentially, if you request a negative test and you don't have your own source of rapid test, it could be a long time before the employee is able to get a test and then even longer before they're able to get results, even if they're no longer contagious. The five-day period, the clients that I have that have gone to that approach and gone by the CDC guidelines, just notwithstanding the OSHA guidelines, are finding that five days may not be enough. Mm-hmm. And and that some employees are still either showing symptoms or and you know it's it's creating a risk of transmission. So I think that the the guidance is a mess. As long as the restaurant basically has a consistent policy and is able to change that policy as needed, it makes sense. And my recommendation would be the federal government is taking steps and state governments are taking steps to make tests more available. I think the clients that have either had their own supply or have had some way to get employees tested, that has been the most effective at cutting transmission to just essentially have a negative rapid test before coming to the restaurant. And I, I think that that is what we're what I would anticipate for the rest of 2022 once these tests are more available. So stock up on masks and stock up on testing supplies and have them as your in in your back room at all times at this point. That's right. And in terms of the question you asked about contact tracing, I think that it's been almost impossible. You've got different responsibilities as an employer than you do as kind of just a place where customers come, right? So I think a lot of that the technology in terms of exposure notifications is available on people's cell phones. Not everyone turns those on. But I think for the most part, restaurants do not have the responsibility to take on the additional role of being contract tracers in addition to kind of being the gatekeepers and and enforcing all the other rules. What about being transparent on their messaging? Is that something they should do and say, hey, you know, we've had a COVID case here or should, do they need to do that or should they even bother? Uh, that varies, right? Some states and California in certain counties has uh, public health reporting requirements where you report it to public health, public health makes that available to people. That doesn't necessarily mean that the restaurant needs to announce it on social media. But a lot of times because of how tight the staffing is, yeah. if you have one or two cases, you're closing down the restaurant. Yes. I think if you're if you're shutting down the restaurant, reducing hours because of a COVID outbreak, it makes sense to say it. I don't think under most states, even California, that you have an obligation to do that kind of messaging. But I think that transparency and showing that the restaurant is taking COVID seriously and is shutting down as a result kind of translates well for for customers. So one of the big issues with the restaurant industry since the beginning has been minimum wage. And, you know, 26 states are going to increase the minimum wage this year. So what do restaurants need to know? I mean, I know that those who are in those states, are it's something that they've been preparing for, or they should have been preparing for. But, you know, what, what do they need to know? What does it say? And I, and I know many restaurants have had to pay, you know, well above minimum wage at this point to get the staff and to retain staff. But where are we now with that? And where do you think that's going? I think we're go- we're moving towards a widespread $15 minimum wage. California already has that starting the beginning of this year. It's $14 for smaller employers, but any employer with more than 15 um, employees, which is almost every restaurant, it's uh, $15 an hour. And West Hollywood here is moving to $18 an hour minimum wage for hotel employees, which would include restaurant workers. Uh, so I think that the $15 minimum wage is coming if it's not already in your state. There's only, there are still five states that don't require a minimum wage at all, and the restaurants in those states are in a different uh, situation. Right. But I think also because of where 
the labor forces and, you know, most restaurants are needing to pay $15 an hour anyway, just to attract people to work there. I think that thinking really pragmatically and strategically about staffing and technology is really the, the only way that restaurants have to, to handle this and kind of figuring out how to use staff most efficiently. I, I think it's a challenge that everyone has been thinking about even before 2022. It's just a continuing challenge. But, you know, there's there's no way around it. There's not going to be pressure to take the wage down. You know, I think it's 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 only going on an upward trajectory. So one of the topics that I hear about a lot, and there's a lot on social media, is the relief funding for restaurants. We've had a couple of rounds, and there's a lot of talk about the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff pending, but, you know, it's kind of murky as to where we stand now. And, you know, what should restaurants know now and kind of anticipate? And, you know, is there some is there some things they should be doing to let their feelings be known about this? Yeah, I mean, that is something that is just, you know, the, the immediate depletion of that first round of restaurant revitalization funding was pretty difficult for most restaurants that were not able to get funds. There's multiple bills pending now, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund Replenishment Act. There's a potential small business package, which may or may not preclude restaurant relief. But the issue is that there's no clear bipartisan support to pass immediately. There doesn't seem to be the kind of urgency that you would expect given how many restaurants qualified and did not receive funds because of the just the funds were not sufficient for the needs of the restaurants. I know that IRC and the National Restaurant Association and kind of local groups are doing a lot of advocacy. I think it makes sense for restaurants to kind of continue pushing for that relief. But unfortunately, I'm not seeing and, and, you know, I'm not a I'm a lawyer and not a policy advocate, but I'm not seeing kind of any assurances that the funding would get passed immediately or in the very near future. Right. So restaurants should kind of reach out to their elected officials and and kind of try to try and push for this but not anticipate that they're going to actually come through at this point. That's right. So before the pandemic, one of the top legal issues I guess that we were dealing with was working with the Department of Labor on tips and the different rules for tips and what people's can, uh, people can do and tip pooling. Where do we stand kind of now on all of this and, uh, you know, what restaurants need to know? It, was, it got kind of got so confusing, but it's something that they really need to have clearly stated out to know what they should be doing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's kind of like a bouncing ball and whatever the administration is just changes these rules. And so it's extremely difficult to keep track of. So basically in 2020, the Trump administration at the tail end, the Department of Labor issued a 2020 final tip rule. And the Department of Labor then revoked the under the Biden administration in 2021. They revoked that rule and then they kind of kept it in limbo for a while. And then they have now issued effective December 28th of 2021, a new tip final rule that, that went into effect the end of December. And so that revives the 80-20 rule. And it also adds, which I think is very important to keep in mind, a 30-minute rule. So if a tipped employee is doing 30 minutes of non-tipped side work, then the restaurant or the employer cannot take a tip credit. 
And although the rule is structured to say 30 minutes of continuous non-tipped side work, the restaurant needs to be aware of how much non-tipped side work the employee is doing throughout their shift because the record keeping requirements in the new rule, this is something that are very specific as to how much time the employee is spending on whatever task. And so essentially, if you've got servers and you have them do anything else, you could be at risk under this rule. Department of Labor hasn't issued all the kind of the, the full stream of regulations that we would expect to provide Q&A. They've issued some, some guidance and there's some guidance in the final rule itself. They considered a lot of uh, opposition to this rule. And it's not very clear, right? It's not it's not an easy to read rule. And so we basically are back to the at least 80% of the work must be tipped. But then you also have the 30 minutes to keep track of. And that makes it difficult because if you're not in control of how many customers, especially with something now, you know, I know that restaurants have experienced people canceling reservations. And so you might have staff working and not necessarily have have something for them to do if, if your tables or your indoor dining is is empty. And so that means that even in that case, you've got to anticipate if you're taking a tip credit, you've got to be very, very careful with what what non-tipped work anyone is doing. So what do you advise restaurant owners, you know, tell their employees in terms of how to be aware and how to track their time? I'd say the first thing is look at your current timesheet and look at the rule. If you've got a lawyer, speak to them about it because you want to make sure that the way employees are tracking time is something that could stand up to an audit. So right now, most timesheets aren't going to say, you know, I did I, I did X and Y that's non-tip. So you've got to think through what tasks people are doing that are kind of like this non-tipped side work and how much time your tipped employees are spending on that. And then I think you go from that to messaging to your employees. You got to tell your managers that if someone is tipped and you're taking a tip credit for them, they should be doing the minimum, bare minimum of non-tipped side work. So another issue, which is always an issue for the restaurant industry is food safety. And there was a lot of legislation regarding food safety and where do we stand on that and what can people be doing, you know, particularly as we're dealing with so many supply chain issues right now, you know, what can they do to kind of keep food safety paramount? You know, I think the FDA has made clear that they are really focused on food safety and on modernizing some FDA processes, which I think will be helpful in terms of transparency to restaurants about the ingredients that they're getting. And the FDA is putting into place a public dashboard from the reportable food registry so that essentially both consumers and restaurants who are getting ingredients can know if there's been a recall earlier than they would have known known in the past. Now, in terms of the supply chain and the time that it might take for restaurants to get ingredients, I don't think it's going to be something that's immediately helpful. I think it's something that will change over 2022 and maybe something more looking forward that restaurants can anticipate being helpful. But I think that the FDA is both the congressional committee that oversees the FDA and the FDA itself has announced that they're going to be more active in terms of both food safety requirements and kind of other labeling requirements and trying to encourage more healthy choices in the industry. For example, reducing sodium intake. They've issued voluntary guidance on trying to reduce sodium intake by something like 12.5% over the next two and a half years. So I think that Food safety is something that's an agency priority. Hopefully there'll be more transparent data that restaurants can benefit from, but I I would anticipate that coming over the next few months. So let's flip to another agency, the Federal Trade Commission. 
and talk a little bit about advertising. And this is, you know, something that I know that you kind of have a, a passion about, about advertising rules and practices. And, you know, what do restaurant, you know, this usually affects the, the larger chains, but what do they need to kind of know about maybe the things they should avoid or pay attention to in their advertising about what they're putting out there so that they, you know, kind of avoid some of these hurdles and some of these challenges? Yeah, so I am really passionate about what the FTC is doing, and, and a lot of my practice is dealing with false labeling and false advertising cases. Now, the FTC is more active than they've ever been, and what they spent 2021 doing is issuing warnings to thousands of different businesses about practices that they're observing that will be penalized in the future. And then the FTC also increased, essentially, its own enforcement abilities. So they can issue higher penalties for violations and do a lot of administrative work that they previously would have needed to take someone to court over. So they essentially issued more powers to themselves. So these warning letters that were sent out were sent about two main things that could affect restaurants. And this, as you said, it would really affect more of the uh, restaurant chains, but also affects the food delivery apps. So in that way, any restaurant that's sure. working with the food delivery apps could kind of be caught up in what they may be doing to answer those regulations. So one of them was about testimonials, right? So it essentially said that if you are using or if you're paying for reviews or somehow tweaking the reviews that are coming up, that could be considered false or deceptive advertising. And so if a restaurant is giving people something in, in exchange for a positive review or the review is otherwise false under the FTA standards, that could result in a fine of almost $44,000 per violation. And so that's something to keep in mind, depending on how a restaurant uses reviews. The other thing is, if you've got any kind of subscription sign up, you know, some restaurants, especially in the pandemic, they did stuff like, you know, olive oil or pasta subscriptions where someone opts in. If you're using that, you've got to be very careful because the FTC announced that they're going to be cracking down on what they call uh, negative option marketing, meaning that customers have to have a very clear way to opt out of continuing into a subscription. So any restaurants that offer any kind of subscription service that's primarily done online needs to look at that warning letter and make sure that customers have the rights that are required. Are there any other kind of examples of advertising that they should be aware of about what they what they should and shouldn't be doing? Yeah, and this mostly comes from lawsuits. So the food and beverage industry always has a lot of false advertising and false labeling advertisement issues to essentially look at. And in 2021, more lawsuits were filed across the country than ever before. And those lawsuits were primarily brought in California and New York with some in Illinois. But essentially the issue is that if a food company or a restaurant uses terms like healthy or organic or sustainable, they need to be able to back up those claims or they could be uh, liable for a lawsuit. And for independent restaurants, right, as opposed to the larger change, that, that could come in the form of kind of a demand letter for something particular. Uh, but uh, P.F. Chang's and Subway were sued about basically how they, you know, the, the Subway tuna lawsuit and then 
uh, Subway had previously been sued about the size of its like 12, 12 inch sandwich, the foot long. Foot long. Yeah. And P.F. Chang's was sued on a menu labeling case about the use of the word crab, K-R-A-B. They had a crab mm. sushi rolls that didn't actually contain crab. They were imitation crab. The question is, what does a consumer expect? So it's not, you know, I think that paying a little bit of attention to what's happening with processed food industry is helpful, but it's especially important for restaurants that bill themselves as, you know, healthy organic. I know a lot of restaurants do, right? And so if they're in that kind of health food space or that organic space, they need to be more careful because some of the issues are, is this product actually helpful if you're on a diet? You know, if, if, is there so much sugar on it that you can't really say it's a healthy smoothie or a healthy choice? Because right. that's really what happened to some of the cereal companies that they got large judgments against them because of characterizing certain cereals as healthy. And then the plaintiffs in those lawsuits said, look how much sugar is in this. This is not healthy. And the courts have, have agreed with them or the, you know, the cereal companies have settled. So restaurants should be aware of that as kind of part of their larger marketing strategy and their social media strategy, because advertising can include include everything that you post on social media, not just what a customer sees when they look at your, you know, the QR code menu. Right. So they should be aware of the traceability of everything that they're serving and as well as the, you know, the language that they're using and, you know, making sure that it is what it says it is. That's right. Especially if you say, you know, this is all sustainable, this is farm to table, this is, you know, local, and then you're using something that's not. The more claims you make, the more of an obligation you have to make sure everything you say has a basis. If you don't make certain claims, if you just say, you know, this is this is a chicken sandwich, and like that's all you say, it, it really limits your liability. But if you say this is from X farm or this is, you know, farm to table, hand fed, cage free. The more the more things that you say, the more you've got to back it up. Right. So let's flip a little to states and the different legislations and, and things that are going on. One key issue that a number of them are dealing with is the third party delivery apps and the fees that they charge. So, you know, you can go into, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, you're more familiar with where California is on this. What's going on now and, you know, what's what's behind this and where do you think it's going? So I think it's a very interesting area. So when the pandemic started in 2020, a lot of cities across different states issued emergency fee caps, right? Like something, some, some, somewhere between 15 to 30% as a temporary emergency only fee cap. Some cities are starting to make that permanent. San Francisco just unanimously approved that. Other cities may be doing the same, but California has passed in, in the past two years, California has passed two laws uh, regulating the food delivery apps. There's one that just went into effect January 1st, which is AB 286. But that really builds off of a law that was passed the year earlier, which is the Fair Food Delivery Act. So the Fair Food Delivery Act prohibited the third-party food delivery apps from listing a restaurant on their app unless the restaurant had provided explicit written authorization. And then AB 286 makes it unlawful for the food delivery platform to charge prices above what they post on uh, the website, has some tip protections for the food delivery drivers, and then requires a breakdown of all the costs to the customer so they can see what fees are being charged. But what's interesting is that law was supposed to go even further. The first iteration of that law also required that the food delivery app share customer data with the restaurants. But ultimately, because California has its own strong consumer privacy laws, they did not include that that sharing of data. But New York passed a similar law 
that has the provisions that I just discussed from California, plus required restaurants to share customer data with the restaurants, oh, sorry, uh, the the apps yeah. to share the customer data with the restaurants. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that takes off, what the economic impact is, and if there's any momentum to pass something similar at the federal level. I don't think it will happen in 2022. I think California and New York are going to be ahead of the curve, but I could see something happening at the federal level within the next few years as well. Another issue that definitely you know, took off in the pandemic was alcohol sales and and the evolving alcohol sales and to go alcohol in different places. And, you know, what what's going on with that? You know, things had kind of backtracked and then now they're allowing to go sales in New York City, you know, for instance. So, you know, what's going on with that? And what, you know, what do restaurants who, you know, have alcohol available, you know, what are things, you know, that they need to be aware of for right now? So right now, California has passed three different laws that are supposed to encourage these more streamlined ABC processes that we saw as a result of the pandemic. But California, previously, you were allowed to have uh, to go delivery of alcohol, and they've cut that out. Customers must now, even though California has expanded the to-go sales of alcohol, customers must come pick up that alcohol themselves. So it's very nuanced. It's an interesting push-pull effect because I think that some of these ABC rules are a little antiquated as you know restaurant owners complain about a lot. But I think seeing both outdoor dining and alcohol to-go sales during the pandemic did not cause you know significant issues that certain people had been predicting. I think there's been a push to extend some of these emergency measures into regular times because it's something that offers tangible relief to um, to restaurants. So I think states that had this emergency order and had it expired, there's been some movement to at least have what they had during 2020 because we're in similar situations in a lot of ways in 2022. And, and so it really it varies on a state by state level. But just as with New York City, and I think New York State, the governor just announced the incentive to return to that program statewide. I think that there is customer demand for it. It hasn't shown a significant cost to the states. It's kind of a win-win situation for states to impose. And I think that's something that if a restaurant is in a state that doesn't have that, it's something that the legislature seem pretty open to doing. And so I think that's it's a good place to also lobby. An issue that kind of will have a ripple in the pond effect for restaurants is Proposition 12 in California, which involves the living conditions of farm animals. And I want you to explain how, you know, how this will have different repercussions for restaurants and what they need to know about it. Yeah. So if your restaurant uses eggs or pork, I think it's going to be very, very valuable for, for you to, to <laughs> bacon <viewers>. anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Proposition 12 was actually passed in 2018 as kind of a voter initiative. So this was supposed to improve living conditions for farm animals. And so there was one set of regulations that went into effect in January of 2020. And the second large set of requirements went into effect of January 1st of this year. So essentially, they require that it it prohibits the sale of pork or eggs where the animals have been confined in a cruel manner. And then it defines cruel manner, meaning that for it to not be a cruel manner, egg laying hens have to be housed cage free and breeding pigs have 24 square feet in their living space. And so many, many farms across the country do not meet those requirements. And so if there is, if there are animals 
that are housed in conditions that do not meet the California requirements after December 31st, 2021, then the sale of those animals, the sale of that meat or those eggs is prohibited in California. So that affects how it will affect the industry. The question really is, how is it going to be enforced? You know, even though it went into effect of this year, technically it only affects animals that were not in the stream of commerce before December 31st. And it's also unclear how the state is going to be enforcing it. Now, because this was a voter proposition and not something passed by the legislature, there was very limited ability to change the terms, but they haven't issued, you know, a fee schedule of fines or given any indication of how fines will be disseminated. When the state actually starts enforcing this law, it's going to reduce the availability and raise the price of pork and eggs until everything kind of gets up to the standard. But essentially, the ag side, agricultural companies are going to have to decide whether or not they comply with these kind of requirements. And if they don't, they can't sell to the California market. Is there similar legislation in other states, you know, that they should be aware of that this is something that's probably going to become nationwide at some point? You know, I don't I don't know of other regulations that's this this broad and this specific. I think this is kind of nation leading as far as I know. I don't know. I think there may be some legislation that's kind of pending in in some other states. I think there's something in Washington that might be pending. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. But I think that it's really more going to be a question of once California does it and the California market is so huge, it may have a ripple effect on the industry in general. I don't see any I don't see any momentum for this to be a federal legislation. I think it'll really be because California is doing it, it will have uh, kind of an effect on the stream of commerce. And and if you're in another state, but doing business with California, you might as well do, you know, put these restrictions in place, but you're also selling in New York or wherever. So it's kind of going to have that trickle down effect you know, all around. Right. I don't, does New York have anything like that pending? I, you know, I don't know. I was just using it as an example saying is someone uh-huh. doing business in, you know, in multiple locations, they're still going to treat their animals humanely because it just makes market sense to do it. Right. Great. Perfect. We got through everything. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, we did. Perfect. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.